Well, good morning and welcome to Christ Community. My name is, is Tim and I uh, serve as one of the pastors here. It's good, especially to see you. It feels like we haven't met um, since like a year ago. It's, it's been so many weird Sundays, um, especially that ice storm last week. Wasn't that, wasn't that a normal Sunday <laughs> at the end of things? Um, but really glad to see you. Uh, if you have a, a Bible, you can turn to Matthew 22. That's where we're going to be this morning. And if you're a kid, uh, we have Kids Connects on the back of the, the table. If you didn't grab one of these green sheets on your way in, feel free to run back um, and grab one um, now. But before we jump into Matthew 22, I just want to pray for us, ask for God's help, and then we'll jump into our text for this morning. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have spoken to us. And as we open up your word now, we don't want to, to take your words and make them into what we want them to be. God, I certainly don't want to do that. I don't want to bring my agenda to your words. And so I pray you would give all of us ears that hear, hearts open to, to your revelation to us, what you have said to us. God, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, what's the, the most important thing that a human being should do? Assuming that there, there's a God, if God was to say, hey, I want one thing from you, uh, what would it be? I've been, I've been thinking about how would I answer that question um, lately, but the reality is I'm probably not the best one to answer that. My kids are probably far better uh, to answer that for me than, than I am because this, the thing that I tell them constantly to do is probably what they think I think is the most command, uh, important commandment there is. Right, like pick that up or leave me alone, give me a minute. Um, or my, my son Micah has started playing with the, our gas range. So I went in there one day, he had turned it on, and our whole kitchen just smelled like natural gas. And so I was, I was very specific and have repeated that command many times, don't touch the stove ever under any circumstances, just don't. And so you might, Micah might think the most important thing for a human being to do is to never touch the stove, right? It, it may be what, what we say most is what we, is, is our most um, important command. But joking aside, if, if you ever really give... An answer to that question, what's the most important thing for us to do? The thing God would want most from, from you. Is it do no harm, right? Don't hurt other people. Be, be kind to one another. Don't judge others. But what is the most important thing we're called to do as human beings? What's the, what's the thing above all other things God wants from you? Well, Jesus says in the text that we're in this morning, it's Matthew 22, verses 34 through 40. And the answer he gives is one that, that I think is a bit surprising, but also um, doesn't jive with a lot that is in our culture. And so here, uh, this is our text for this morning, Matthew 22, verses 34 through 40. Here's what Jesus, here's how Jesus approaches that question. But when the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, Sadducees they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great, great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. But Jesus says the, the most important thing you're to do with your life is to love God with everything you have. And if you love God with everything you have, then you're going to love your neighbor as if your neighbor is your own self. That's Jesus' answer to what your life should be devoted to, what the most important thing for us to be doing. But it raises a host of, of questions. Okay, well, what does it mean to love God? What does it mean, what does it look like to love your, your neighbor? And how do we actually become people that, that do that? 
And so I want to jump into this, the text answering those three questions. What does it mean to love God? What does it mean to love your neighbor? And how do we actually do it? So first, what, is, what does it mean to love God? What, is, what does Jesus say when he tells us, love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength? There are a couple barriers culturally we have to come, I think, overcome in order to get to what Jesus is, is saying. Because the, the God of the Bible is saying something we don't really like here, which is that you, you must love him devotionally, exclusively, above all other things. He wants the best of your heart. The Oprah said that was the reason why she left the Christian faith in her 20s, that she couldn't imagine this, this God sort of acting like a jealous person who demanded you love him more than everybody else. Right? It seems so weird that God would need to say that, that he would need to be insistent that you put him above all other things in, in your life. And Brad Pitt, in an interview with Parade Magazine, said something similar, uh, gave re the, a similar reason for why he left his Christian roots in, uh, while he was at the University of Missouri. Here's what uh, he said in that interview. I didn't understand this idea of a God who says, you have to acknowledge me. You have to say I'm the best, and, I'll give you eternal, and then I'll give you eternal happiness. If you won't, then you don't get it. It seemed to be about ego, and I can't see God operating from ego, so it made no sense to me. I think they're right about that initial reaction to God saying that. It, God saying, love me above all else, seems to be about um, ego. And, and to make matters weirder for us, like God, we, don't, we don't actually physically see God. Right? And so Jesus is saying the most important thing for you to do with your life is to love more than anything else with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, to love a person that you will never see. So why, why is loving God so important? Why is this the most important thing you should do, according to Jesus? Well, to answer that question, we have to understand Jesus is quoting here from the book of Deuteronomy. It's in the Hebrew scriptures, in particular quoting Deuteronomy 6, 4. And when, in, in that day, when you would quote a long passage or a long uh, uh, quotation you wanted people to think about, you just give a couple sentences, but you wanted people to have the whole, the whole context in mind. And so Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 6.4, but he's really pointing back to that whole context. And so the, the, the verses Jesus quotes from, it's, it's Deuteronomy 6.4 and 5. Here are, are those words in the Hebrew, from the Hebrew scriptures. They read like this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. That if you were to go out and you were to read all of Deuteronomy 6, it's a long chapter. There, there are two themes that are, are more important than any other. The themes Jesus is alluding to here in Matthew 22. The, the first theme is that God is, is king. If you went home and you read Deuteronomy 6, you might get a little bored. It's a long, thick section, and we're very culturally removed from that, that setting. And so we would miss a lot of what's happening in Deuteronomy 6, where the original hearers, the original readers, understood there, there's more that's going on there than just God telling you you need to love him. The Deuteronomy 6, it, it's written in the form of, of an ancient treaty. Uh, between a king and his subjects. And so what would happen is when a king would take over a people, uh, he would form a treaty with them. And as a part of that process, they would have this ceremony, and the king would say, here's what you have to do. Here are the commands I'm giving to you. And if you do these things for me, then I, as your king, will do certain things for you. And so, so what, what, what's happening in Deuteronomy 6 is God has told his people, I freed you from slavery in, in Egypt. You're now, you're now my people. I'm giving you a land to go and live in. I'm going to be your king. You're going to be my people. And... And here are my commands for you. Here is, is what you are to do with, 
your life. And what God says is the most important thing he wants his people to do for him as their king is for them to love him with everything they have. Right? Not, you better do whatever I say. Right? Give me this much money. Here are your taxes. This is what you owe me. Not, it's not any of that. It's not the typical thing you would hear from a king. Instead, what he wants is he wants love. It's a strange thing for a king to say when you think about it. We inaugurated a president uh, this past Friday, and, and even though it's a different context than Deuteronomy 6, the weirdness, the strangeness of what go, go, is going on in Deuteronomy 6 um, is similar to what would have happened if, if Trump had said something similar on Friday. Just imagine that. He's, he's saying he's our, our, our new president, and what he wants from us more than anything else um, in, in all the world is for us to love him. It'd just be weird, right? I mean, Trump said some weird things, but like, that would be just really weird for to, us to love him. Why? A ruler doesn't ask for that. He commands obedience and, and money and, and loyalty. No, why love? Why is the most important thing God wants from you is love? Well, the first, the first thing, as I mentioned in Deuteronomy 6, is that God, he's, not just, he's not just a person, he's a king among them. But the second primary theme in Deuteronomy 6 is that God is one. What that means is that, that there's one God. There are not many gods duking it out, not many forces or energies at work in the world to which you owe different loyalties, competing loyalties. No, what, what God is saying is, I'm the only one like me. There's no one else like me, which means literally everything that exists in the world, it exists because of him. He made everything. There's not another God who made a portion of the world and they're fighting out with the God of the Bible. And it's, that's not what's going on. There is one God. The Lord is one. Everything exists because of him, which means you exist. Because of him, I exist because of him and him alone. And so there are a number of places in the Bible where, where different authors reflect on that, that God is the reason we exist. And there's, there's a few places where the author goes into the womb and reflects on the fact that before, before they were born, God knew them. God was knitting them together in the womb. That before their parents held them in their arms... God knew who they were going to be. They knew he was creating their personality, creating who they were. That God knew me before I knew me. God knew me before my parents knew me. And the same is true for you. And if that's, if that's true, then it means the, the only way you can be the person that you're supposed to be is if, is if you love him. Right? As any parent would hope that, that a child would not just give attention towards the parent, but actual love and affection, as any artist would hope that its art would be a true reflection of, of that which created it. God doesn't, God doesn't just want this dispersonal relationship with you. He made you. He knows you. He loves you. He wants you to love him back. He's not, he's not just your God. He's your maker. He's your designer. So God is saying, the one thing I want from you, more, the one thing that from which all of the rest of your life should flow is that you love me with everything you have. And so what does that mean? What does that look like to love God? Well, Jesus unpacks that. He's, and Deuteronomy unpacks that. To love our God with all our hearts, with all our soul, with all our minds. And we're to love God with our, our mind. I think that's one reason why seasons of doubt often lead to greater faith, a deeper experience of God. Because when, we're, when we doubt, we're forced to love God with our mind. We're forced to think out what it is we're being told, we don't just blindly accept whatever it is this, this book says or whatever it is uh, someone in my position 
would say. We're asking questions, we're thinking, we're reflecting, and, and we, we come to a deeper understanding of who God is. We're, we're, to, we're to reflect on God, we're to chew on who he is, to think about who he is, to, to meditate on who he is, to love him with our, our mind. But secondly, Jesus says we're to love God with our, our, our soul. Another, another word, a way that says in Deuteronomy is to love him with our strength. And in the Gospel of John, uh, one of Jesus' friends, uh, John, um, said that, that Jesus at one point in his life said, if, if you want to love me, the thing you must do is obey me. You must listen to what I, I say about how to live your life. You should love me above all else. And to love God is going to require strength because God is going to command you to do things that, that other people wouldn't do, that are going to be hard to do in your own cultural context, that people are going to push back against. So loving God, it takes strength, it takes might. And the last thing Jesus says, you're to love God with all your heart. But your emotions, your feelings, your joys, your tears, you're to take those before God and to love him, not just impassively or not just dispassionately, but with your whole self. So all that stuff is important. You probably think out your own ways. What does that look like? But but if I had to summarize what it means to love God in a sentence, this is the sentence I, I would say. That loving God, if you love God, you will, you will speak to him more than you will talk about him. You will address him more than you converse about him. It is much easier for us to, to talk about God in the third person. Right, we get in Bible studies, we pull God off the shelf, we, we dissect him, we poke at him, we learn little bits about him, and then we put him back on the shelf. That we, it's easy to treat God as an abstraction, as an idea, as a theology. And I think that's why God, as king, in, in Deuteronomy 6, is speaking to us, saying, what I want from you is, is your love. What I want is your heart. I want you to address me. I want you to speak to me. I don't want you to treat me as a theology, as an idea, as an abstraction, as, as a distant um, um, theory, or as, as a set of rules to be obeyed. I am a person who's addressing you. I want you to address me. And so one of the greatest... Christian works in history was written by the theologian Augustine, which is, is both a deep work of theology, engaging the mind. It's a spiritual autobiography. He reflects on his life and his faith. But the whole thing, it's, it's written addressed to God. And Augustine, one of his primary themes that he talked about through his life was loving God. He understood if you love God, you address him. You, speak, you spend more time addressing him, speaking to him, than talking about him. And I would just ask, is that true of, of you? Is God more of an idea to you, an abstraction, a theology? Have you spent more time thinking about God or addressing him? And my point here isn't just, hey, you better pray more. Um, you need to pray more than you are right now. No, what I want us to wrestle with is this weirdness. that What God wants most from you as, as your maker, as your desire, as the king of all the universe, is your love, is your affections, is your mind. Not just for him to be some theology or set of beliefs you adhere to, but a person you spend your life addressing. Because if you love him, you'll spend more time speaking to him than speaking about him. So that's what it means to love God. But this isn't an ego trip. This isn't because God is, is incomplete without your love and he just, he just needs it. Um, no, what, the next, what, what Jesus is saying here is that if you love God first... You, be, you will become the, the kind of person who then loves your neighbor as yourself. And what he says is these two commandments, they're not just like a sequence. They're not just the two things you have to do. They're connected with one another. And so we, we spend time thinking, okay, what does it mean to love God? Well, what does it mean to love your neighbor? 
So listen again to the way Jesus frames these two commands, the way he connects them together. He said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these commandments depend all the law and the prophets. In my, uh, in my boys' rooms, uh, we, we've, we've hung curtains. Um, the curtains have a very important purpose. They are to keep the room as dark as possible to keep our kids asleep as long as possible because light wakes up kids. So we have these curtains that are like, they are thick, they are heavy. Um, you probably couldn't set them on fire. Like the sun can't penetrate them to keep our kids asleep as long as we possibly can. And, and so these, these curtains are hanging on curtain rods, which are anchored into a wall by just a couple screws. And so our boys many times go and they pull on those curtains. They, they're like, let us out. We want the sun. You know, we want to wake up. And so they pull on the curtains. They pulled them down many times. And if those two screws, if they come down with the curtains, everything comes crashing down with it. When Jesus is saying about, uh, he says the law and the prophets, but it's another word for the scriptures, another way to talk about the scriptures. What Jesus is saying is, is all of the Bible, all of the scriptures hang on, on these two things. And if these two things fall away, if you don't have these two things, you don't, the scriptures are meaningless. And the two things that, that hang together are, are love God and love your neighbor as yourself. Those two anchors hold scripture together. So what does it, what does it mean then? If, if you're going to be someone who loves God, it means you'll be someone who loves your neighbor. What does it mean to love your neighbor? And, and the scripture reflects on this in a lot of different places. But, but let me just lay out two implications to try and summarize all of those different places in two ways, what it means for us to love our, our neighbors as ourselves. That first, we're called to love the neighbors right in front of us. And one of the best things I've, I've read recently is, was a blog post by um, an author named Jim Wilkin. And, and here's how her, her article, uh, the blog post begins. That's titled, Your Child is Your Neighbor. Here's how she starts. Um, if you ask me the, thing, the single most important insight that has shaped my parenting, it would be this. Children are people. Right, it's not that brilliant of an insight, right? Like, your kids are human beings, right? Like, that's not that great of an insight. And yet, what she's saying is, it's easy for the people closest to us, for us to not see them as people. Because they get on our nerves more, they frustrate us more. And so this, this insight, insight hit me like a ton of bricks. Not because I don't know my kids are human, that's a well-established fact. But I, I realized how... How easily the people closest to me, my wife, my kids, my coworkers, those I spend the most amount of time with, how often I can forget they, they're, they're people, they're my neighbor. Whereas if a new person walks into to our church, I'm instantly thinking, are they cared for? Are they, do they feel weird? Is, are, do they feel at home? Or, you know, they're my neighbor. I have to make, make sure they're welcome. When I see the poor or the marginalized, I'm instantly thinking, how can I love them better? They're my neighbor. I have to care for them. When I, when I go to visit someone in the hospital, I'm thinking, how can I care for them? I want to love my neighbor well, but the people right in front of me, all day long, I forget they're people. And so when we think about loving your neighbor, I don't want you to immediately start thinking of like some really abstract ideas, the guy with the sign on the, the interstate who's begging for, for, for food or for a job. I don't want you to think necessarily the poor or the marginalized. I want you to think of the people you look at the most. They are your neighbor. The, loving your neighbor gets flushed out with who you live with, with your roommates with your, your spouse, with your kids. It's the people who live next door to you. They are, they are people. And if you're to love your neighbor, you have to start there with the people right in front of you. And the, the other primary uh, uh, people that are right in front of you, it's, it's the people you encounter through your work. 
When I worked at Starbucks, I had a contentious relationship with, with my store. This is my second store manager. Uh, he just wanted to be one of the, the workers, one of the people. And so his management style meant that he, he didn't really ever confront people. And because I worked at nights mostly, uh, um, because of my schooling, um, I would come in, and a lot of times no one had done any work all day. And I had to go and do all the work for the morning and the evening, doing lots of dishes and, and things that should have been done throughout the day. And it was really frustrating to me. And I had a lot of animosity build up towards my boss because my life was being made difficult because he wasn't doing his work. And it was easy to forget he's a person and get frustrated with him and start, you know, dehumanizing him in, in my mind. And so one day we sat down and, and we had a conversation. And, and the conversation, what it revealed to me more than anything was we got on the same page, was that, oh, oh you're a person with fears and with frustrations, with things you know you're not doing. Well, it is so easy for us, for the people nearest to us, to forget they are people. And so may I remind us, your, your coworkers, they're, they're people, they're your neighbors. Your patients, your clients, your customers, they are your neighbors. They are people. The people you will spend most of your week this week, they are your neighbors. So love them and treat them with humility. And, and don't just treat them well, but also as, as you go about your work, remember that the work you do is, is one of the primary ways that you love your, your neighbor through the work that you produce, through the product that you make, through the the interaction with clients who have come to you for help, that's the primary way, aside from the way you're going to love your neighbor in your home, the primary way you're going to love your neighbor this week is, is going to be at your workplace. And so love the people right in front of you. Love the neighbor right in front of you. So that's one way that the, the, the neighborly love theme is fleshed out in the scriptures. The other is that love, love the, the neighbor others don't. Now here's what we do as human beings. We, we, just, we create a list of people that are not our neighbor. And we're really good at that. So throughout history, every culture that has human beings in it, which is every culture, um, has a list of people who are less than human, who are not their neighbors. And so most cultures, including ours, have deeply distressing histories when it comes to, to race, to socioeconomic class. So throughout human history, we've been trying to create certain people as less than human, as not our neighbors, so that we can oppress them, so that we can justify certain actions against them. Which is why I find so interesting that the moment Jesus is asked, who is my neighbor? Right? He gave this command to some guy, and the guy immediately started thinking, okay, who's my neighbor? Which really what he's asking there is, who's not my neighbor? Where, do, where does the list start for me? Who are the people I don't have to love? And so what Jesus did is he tells the story of the Good Samaritan. You may be familiar with that. Uh, but if I can summarize the story in one sentence, G what Jesus says is, the person who's the wrong race, who you don't want to love, that's your neighbor. In other words, the person who starts your I don't have to love list, you're not my neighbor list, the person who begins that list is, is your neighbor. You don't get a list. Really what Jesus is saying is you have to love every human being as yourself. And let's be honest, the church doesn't have great history here. We haven't loved God first and above all else, which meant there have been times we've not loved our neighbors as ourselves. And so that's one thing I pray for us as a church is that we as a church, every one of us in here, we don't have a list of people that we get out of loving. And one way we're thinking this out uh, as a church, especially in the, the cultural season we're in, is, is on February 13th, we're going to be hosting an evening at our Brookside campus um, from 7 to 9 p.m. We're going to talk about how uh, we as a church can better love our neighbors who are of different races. Uh, we're having a world-renowned sociolo sociologist who's spoken on race in, his name is Michael Emerson, um, as well as different leaders from around our, our city. We hope, we hope you come because we, we recognize that as a church, I recognize in my own life, it's easy to start formulating that list of people who are different than me that, that I don't have to love. 
But one other neighbor that often gets, gets overlooked in our, our culture um, is the not yet, the not yet born. And one of the reasons why I made um, a bit of shift in my own life in college from being someone who's sort of nominally pro-life, I thought like as a Christian I had to be, but I hadn't really thought it out, to being someone who, um, this is really a defining issue for my, me and my own life, my own spirituality, um, is that I began to understand that, that the unborn is my, it's my human neighbor. It's human life. At whatever stage of, of development. That no matter the race, no matter the cognitive development, no matter what other, the value other people see in, in a certain human life, that if I'm a Christian, no, I cannot exclude certain human life from my definition of neighbor. Because once you start that list, once you have a list of who doesn't, you don't have to love, that list is just going to have, you're just going to add people to it over your life. But if you burn the list, it has to, that means you have to love every, every human life. And so this Sunday, it's, it's Sanctity of Life Sunday. It's a moment most churches or many churches mark out. A time to remind us that, that mothers who have unplanned pregnancy, that the children um, who may, they carry, we're called to love them as a church. Not to condemn them, not to speak word of judgment against them, but to say that that child is our neighbor and we want to love them as ourselves. But rather for me uh, to unpack what that should look like or what, what that means, um, we have a congregant here. His name is Tim Seeley. He's really gifted in video editing. And he, he shot a video that helped uh, our primary partner, Advice and Aid, which is a, a ministry directed towards um, moms with unplanned pregnancies. Um, and so he helped uh, produce a video to kind of tell that story. And I thought, better than me talking about this, let's take a look um, at what, uh, what is good work. We are Dean and Jenny Behrens. Yeah, I'm Jenny. I'll <laughs> <laughs> oh, try that. You want to try that again? I'm Dean. Hi, I'm Jenny Behrens. Our daughter was born in 2009, and she was maybe a year old when we decided to try to grow our family. And then two years later and three years later, um, still struggling with uh, secondary infertility. And so um, rather than try a lot of medical different medical routes, we really felt like, well, maybe we should explore adoption first. If we crack up at Winston probably every mm. night at dinner, he'll make all three of us mm. just yeah. giggle to the point of tears because he, he and Joanna will just make each other laugh. <laughs> he is such a joy. He, now that he is so much more active, he is crawling everywhere and pulling up on everything and has strong opinions <laughs> about what he likes and does not like. He's a very happy baby. He smiles constantly and giggles and laughs himself. And he's loud. He's, yeah. he's a very loud baby. <laughs> Our birth mother, actually, when she found out she was pregnant and she had very little support and she was very much in crisis, set up an appointment for an abortion. She felt like she didn't have any options, um, but instead of going to that appointment, she decided instead to go to Advice and Aid, and she found such great support and love there um, that it changed her whole perspective. Um, it was only maybe three months after we uh, Winston was brought into our family 
that I found myself sitting across from a family who was in a crisis of their own, telling me about their teenage pregnancy. If I had not had any experience with the advice and aid, I don't know what I would have said to them. I was so uh, grateful to just be able to recommend them wholeheartedly um, to go to advice and aid and to get support and help from the people there. And it kind of, this whole story came full circle when um, I got a call from our birth mom saying that she was actually uh, counseling this young couple that I had referred from my church. And so we got to see um, this blessing uh, that, that we experienced multiply and continue uh, both for our birth mother and for this new young couple who is in great need of their own. I'm so grateful to Advice and Aid. I don't know where, not only our family, but our birth mom and her family, I just don't know where we would all be without Advice and Aid and the role that they played, the way that they um, intervened and supported um, our, our birth mother throughout her pregnancy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it could have gone a few different ways, but the story mm -hmm. could have just stopped. And it didn't. Because she went to Advice and Aid, the story is just continuing. And it's been really beautiful to watch it all unfold. For me, the thing I would want him to know, but I think he'll always know because of these open relationships, is that you were so loved on both sides, you know, from our family wanting and waiting for you, but also um, from your birth mom and your birth father's family. They both um, made this decision because they felt like this was the best thing for you and, and we all still love you. <laughs> Well, hey, man, that's, it's a beautiful example of what, what it means to love your neighbor. And to those of you who are a part of our congregation who have been involved with Advice and Aid, let me just say thank you for your engagement there. For those of you who have adopted, who have engaged in, in foster parenting, um, thank you. Um, this, is, this is one of the ways we are called to love our, our neighbor as ourselves. And, again, we don't, we don't approach this from a, a, definitely not from a, a, a sense of, of superiority or judgment, um, Rather, we just recognize whether it's race, whether it's it's um, the unborn. We just human beings just we have this tendency to to not look in the face of other humans and see our neighbor, um, to see someone we're called to love as our ourselves. And so, as I watch that video, as I reflect on Jesus' command to us, I mean, it's overwhelming to me that we are every person you come across. The, in fact, the person you think you don't have to love, Jesus says. You're going to look into their face and, and see yourself and love them as if they are your own. And so, um, it's what it means to love your neighbor. <laughs> Taking a look at what it means to love God. Well, how do we actually become a, a person like that? Who loves God with everything in us, but also every person we encounter, as we look into their eyes, we love them as if they are our own selves. How do we actually become people who love God and are our neighbor? If you, you want to know that... Um, we have to go back to Deuteronomy 6, where, where, where God, when he's addressing his people, starts. Which is, he doesn't start by saying, love, love me with all your heart, mind. So he starts by saying, hear, O Israel. Hear, listen. 
Right? It's God, God is addressing us. He's saying, stop, I'm talking to you. That's why I started with the fact that, that if you want to know whether or not you love God more than anything else, compare the time you spend talking about him versus the time you spend addressing him. Because all of this started with God saying to us, hear, I'm speaking to you, listen. And this morning, God, God is addressing you still, in, in, primarily in two ways. First, through, through his scriptures. But here's the thing. It's, it's easy for us to approach the Bible not as a, a personal word which God is directing towards us, but, but to approach the Bible more as a set of interesting facts, a set of rules we are expected to o- obey, a set of interesting historical uh, settings. I mean, the Bible has all those things. It's an interesting story. It has interesting historical facts, but that's, that is not how you are to read the Bible. It's not how we're, we are to read the Bible. We are to read the Bible as God's address to us. Not for us to go in and grab a couple spiritual in, insights and then go take them for what we want from them. No, God is, is addressing you. He's speaking to you. And when your friends or when your spouse says, listen to me, you don't just take a word out of context and run and grab it. No, you listen. You, you slow down. You let the address happen. And I guarantee you if, you, if you let God address you through his scriptures, you will love him more. Because what you will hear coming from his mouth is a king who is kind towards you, his loyal towards you, who loves you, who is patient with you, And the more you encounter that God and his kindness, love, and patience, the more you're going to look in your neighbor's eyes and, and, and have the same disposition towards them, kindness and love and patience and loyalty. Let God address you through his scriptures. When you go to the Bible and just read for, for interesting help, let God address you. And secondly, God is addressing you through his community, through the church. In 2 Corinthians 12, verse 7, Paul says, Every Christian has the Holy Spirit for for the common good of all Christians. In other words, if you're a Christian, you have God dwelling within you for this explicit explicit purpose of working out the good of of those around you. That the people sitting around you who who believe in Christ, they they exist to help you uh, flourish more, to help you love God more. It's one reason why we put so much emphasis on community groups here is for you to be surrounded with people who will help you love God more. So if you, if you want to love God more, if you want to love your neighbor more, you need, you need to let him address you in your scriptures. You need to let him address you through his community. But above all, what, what we need is to look and, and, and meditate and dwell on the life of the only one who ever tried to actually love God with all his heart and all his mind and all his strength and who actually loved his neighbor as himself and everything he did. Now, on the last night of Jesus' life, his, his prayer to God the Father, even though it, he knew it meant certain death, his prayer was, was not my will, but yours be done. God, God the Father, I love you more than I love myself. Your will, not mine, be done. His, his love for God was exclusive. And, and on that cross, as Jesus went to it, every he loved in that moment every human being as himself. He substituted his life for our lives. He literally loved your life as his own and treated your life as his own, dying for it. And you look at his life, as we've been reading through the Gospel of Matthew, it's entirely spent for others. That the very people who kill him and put him on a cross, from the cross, Jesus prays for them, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. The disciples who all abandoned him, after Jesus rose from the grave, he cooks them breakfast on the beach and welcomes them all back into his community. You watch his life and what you find is the king in Deuteronomy 6 who just wants your love, who just wants you to love him with all your heart, mind, and strength. That king gets off his throne, comes into our world, comes looking for us, and loves us in a way no one else will ever love you. He shed his blood for you. He came looking 
for you, your maker, your designer. And he, is, he is inviting you into his life. He's inviting you into himself, a life of loving your neighbor as yourself, of looking in the eyes of every person you encounter and loving them as if they are your own and loving God with all your heart, your soul, your mind and strength. Jesus is inviting you into that life today. Let's pray. Father God, Jesus, Jesus' life demonstrated his love for you and for his neighbor. And so would you help us take up his invitation into that life that we would love you with all our heart and all our soul and all our mind that we would love our neighbors as ourselves that we would devote our lives to you God in faithfulness knowing that you have first loved us would you help us to enter into this life to take his yoke upon us to learn